Welcome to Hub History, the show that brings you fascinating stories from Boston history. This is episode 22, Boston and the American Revolution, with Brooke Barbier. Hi, I'm Nikki. And I'm Jake. And this week, we're going to have an interview with our very first guest. We'll be talking to her first, but if you stick around, we'll find out what's coming up this week in Boston history after the interview. We're joined this week by Brooke Barbier, author of the new book, Boston and the American Revolution, A Town Versus an Empire. Welcome, Brooke. Hi, guys. Thanks so much for having me. Well, we're very excited to have our very first guest. We are. And I'm a Hub History podcast subscriber, so it's a thrill not only to be on the podcast, but to be your first guest. Brooke, can you tell us a little bit about the book you've written and who you envision the audience for this book being? Yeah. So the... Uh, audience for my book are people who are interested in history or even those who might not think they're interested in history and um, are interested in learning more about the American Revolution building on knowledge that they may have learned when they were school kids so my book is designed for people who uh, think they know about the American Revolution and might even know about the American Revolution but for example don't know that the Boston Massacre was just uh, an event that killed five people, and when they hear massacre, they don't remember that it was um, a small event made much bigger by rebels to incite anger and unity against the British Empire. And so the book is about um, Boston from 1763 to 1776. So it picks up after the French and Indian War and ends with the evacuation of Boston. Yeah, I think for a lot of casual history readers, they might be surprised by a book about the American Revolution that ends in 1776. So many people envision that as the, the beginning of the revolution. Yes, that's it's so true. And actually, the book doesn't end with the Declaration of Independence, and that's on purpose. It ends in March of 1776, as I said, with the evacuation, because that's where, in my mind, much of this period of resistance and rebellion in Boston specifically comes to an end and then has a new beginning doing something else. Um, This is interesting because we recently took a trip to Philadelphia and had to remind ourselves that the American Revolution continued after 1776. Yes. I always like to say that it's, uh, that was our Independence Day, March 17th, 1776. And then we were kind enough to keep contributing to the war effort for a few more years after that. Yeah. And you know what I say is, um, I tell people that, and it's not exactly true, but it helps them imagine that if you want to tear down an empire, if you want to start a revolution, you need Boston. But if you want to build a country, you need Philadelphia. (laughs) They have totally different purposes in my mind, even though, of course, they're all working together. Speaking of imagination, how you have people imagine this period, it seems like you really encourage the reader to imagine they don't know the outcome of the story as we're reading about the Stamp Act riots or even the Boston Massacre, not to to picture ourselves as knowing that America becomes an independent nation. Do you think that makes it into more of a story than a lesson? Completely. And I have to say, in the introduction, I say, you know, try and um, imagine that you don't know the outcome because it takes away from the drama of the story And I know that's difficult to do, but um, we all have to remember, and that includes me too when writing this book, is that none of the participants knew what was going to happen. They didn't know 
that there was going to be um, a war that broke out in uh, in 1775, just 12 years after a war had ended. So, uh, it even though it's it may be difficult for readers to do, it's really I think as important as possible to just remember that the people in these stories don't know how it all is going to turn out. You know, it's funny. I just read in John Adams' diaries an entry in 1774 where he's considering writing a full and complete history of the conflict between Britain and her American colonies. And you read that now and you go, mm, maybe a little early for that, John. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, it's, it's funny um, about John Adams, and I didn't know that story, Jake, about him writing, wanting to write a history in 1774. And I think also if you know the story, if you sort of know the basic timeline, then you think that it's all inevitable, that the American Revolution, that the Revolutionary War is inevitable. And one thing that I really encourage readers to do is also just let it all play out because these people were improvising. They didn't know what was going to happen next and they didn't know that if they reacted this way, they would get this reaction back. So I think that's what makes history so interesting is that these people didn't know. Even though we know, they didn't know. And that's what makes it um, an interesting story. It's interesting that you focus on each of the players as characters. Can you tell us a little bit about how you structured the book? It seems like each chapter focuses on both a time leading up to the revolution and also a person who's involved. So I call them key players. Each chapter highlights a key player. Um, and there's, I tried to do a mix of loyalists and rebels it, um, distributed throughout the chapters. And the book proceeds chronologically as time does and um, with each chapter highlighting usually a new crisis between the colonists and the British Empire. Um, and then at the end of each chapter, and this is what, think, what I think makes the book unique, is that it, there's a section called From Past to Present, and it highlights the historic sites mentioned in that chapter, what they look like today, and I did that because it's what I often want in history books that I read. I think, oh, well, does that still stand? Could I go see that? And so it's meant to um, bring the history up to the present and, and that the historical landscape of Boston still tells a lot of this story. You know, speaking of your from past to present segments in the book, last weekend, Nikki and I went to an event called History Camp, which was hosted at Suffolk Law School. And as we were going in in the morning, I looked on the side of the building, there was a very small historical plaque marking that as the former site of the Manufactory House. And I said, hmm, that seems like a very familiar name. And I realized I had just seen the Manufactory House in your book. So can you tell us a little bit about the Manufactory House, its history, and also how it fits into the revolutionary narrative? Yeah. So the Manufactory House, I'm so glad you saw the marker because it's, um, it's, quite hidden, but it was, I think, such an, I think it was a funny sort of event, although it wasn't funny for the people in real time. Looking back, it's, it's a way that we really understand the character of Bostonians. So here's what happens. Um, the British decide to send in British troops to occupy Boston in 1768, and they need a place to stay. And the Quartering Act is confusing for people, um, oftentimes because they, they think that it means that soldiers could stay in private homes. 
But the Quartering Act of 1765 didn't allow for that. It just said all public barracks need to be used first before they go to potentially private buildings, but never private homes. Anyway, so the Bostonians were trying to put the soldiers out on Castle Island, which at this time was literally an island. And, um, uh, and that complied with the letter of the law because the cas ca because Castle Island is technically within Boston. Well, of course, the British saw right through this and said, no, they need to be in the town to guard you guys. And so Governor Bernard decided to just tell the troops that half of them could camp on the common and half could stay in the manufactory house, which was a building um, that would be perfect because it was just had a few people, mostly squatters, living there. And so the soldiers, thinking that they are entitled to this space, go and try to take over the building. And one of the occupants, who's quite smart and brave, frankly, stood them down and said, no, you, we live here, you can't come in. And the soldiers return the next day and try again. And um, this time they try <laughs> they try to enter by force um, through the basement, and that doesn't work either. So the soldiers decide to camp around the perimeter of the manufactory house with the idea to starve the residents out, that don't let them come out, and as soon as they do come out, we'll rush in and, and take over the building. So Bostonians are figuring out what's going on, and people form essentially a ring around the ring of soldiers. So you've got the squatters in the manufactory house, the ring of soldiers guarding the manufactory house, and then a ring of Bostonians around them. And <laughs> they threw loaves of bread through the windows of the manufactory house to the people in the house. I mean, it's hysterical. And um, so that they could stay in the, the house longer and win the standoff. And no surprise, they win the standoff and the soldiers eventually leave. It's a remarkable story that often doesn't get told that shows the ingenuity of Bostonians, the patience of Bostonians, the determination of these Boston rebels. And it also shows uh, how what I see is a dangerous concession by the British by giving up on that, that, that further emboldens Bostonians. So I love the story of the Manufactory House. And that was a new one to me. Yeah, that's a good gem. It's a gem, right? Nikki, it is a gem to be <laughs> sure. Yeah. And the fact that you can go and stand where it was. And I think that makes it all the more special. And what I say in the book is that even though the manufactory house doesn't stand today, and frankly, it would be dangerous if it did, you still get two markers of things that existed at that time. So you can look across the street and see Granary Burying Ground, which existed in 1768, and Boston Common, which existed in 1768. So if you close your eyes, you can kind of imagine the scene. So switching gears just a little bit, um, in the book, it seems like you are very careful to not place the Founding Fathers on pedestals. Um, that you are trying to present them as humans with their flaws. And I'm wondering if there are any things that you uncovered in your research that we would just absolutely be shocked at to know. Yeah, I mean, I think the big surprise for people is that George Washington's um, behaves, um, he's quite grumpy about Bostonians, and that's my very kind way of saying it. 
Um, when he arrives to Massachusetts, he is unimpressed, to say the least, with these men who fought in three battles with the British soldiers and did fairly well in two out of the three battles. And Washington finds them to be undisciplined. He, he, um, he calls them, and this is a direct quote, uh, an exert exceeding dirty and nasty people. I mean, it's, it's, it's shocking that this man who goes on to become, you know, the, the first president of the United States and considered sometimes but as the father of the country, really looked down on the people who he was brought in to lead and who had done a pretty good job without him uh, before, before he got there. So that, I think, that surprises me um, about Washington. And in some ways, it's based on context. He's coming from a very genteel society in Virginia um, and a very hier hierarchical society in Virginia, whereas Massachusetts is much more egalitarian. I mean, that, that's even true in the army where you had a much more personal connection to your leaders. We so, elected our officers. Exactly. And you could decide, well, I, no, I'm not going to serve under that guy. Um, and so for Washington to come in, I mean, this was just a whole, diff literally a different world for him. Um, so in some ways it's based on context, but in some ways he's just kind of um, grumpy, we'll say. Well, as John Adams said, all Virginia geese are swans. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. And Washington thought, you know, he thought highly of himself, to say the least. So that one, I think, I think Washington is in some ways very surprising. I do think John Singleton Copley, I don't get to him too much in the book. He's certainly mentioned, and his father-in-law is one of the key players in the book um, in Chapter 5. But John Singleton Copley, we celebrate as an American artist, but he had really complicated feelings uh, about the politics that were unfolding. And... Um, I, d I don't get to cover him that much, but he's an interesting character too. Um, and, and it was surprising to me as I was uncovering it because I always thought that he was firmly a rebel and you know a, a proud American. And that's really not the case. Yeah, in my mind, he looms large as a, an eventual Tory, but somebody who was very torn in the period leading up to the revolution and who essentially had to turn his back on his hometown. Right, right. And, and part of that is his connection to his father-in-law. I mean, marriage sort of forces that hand. But we think of him, I think of him and his beautiful portraits of the rebels. I mean, ones that... You can go without... to the MFA today and it's the, all the founders are John Singleton Copley portraits. And then a decade later, he's painting Thomas Gage. Yes. And so without Copley, we don't have these incredibly lifelike, beautiful portraits of these men that in some ways he probably despised. I do think it's a, it's a gap in our education and understanding of this time that we really don't get the loyalist perspective. You know, that's never been part of the narrative that we all learn. And so I think that makes it in some ways really, really hard to try to place yourself in this time or to imagine, you know, what it would have been like to be living in Boston at this time. Um, because it was much more divisive than we think at first glance. Sure. Yeah, of course, of course. And because the American Revolution is often told as good guys versus bad guys, good guys being colonists, bad guys being loyalists. 
Darth Vader and Luke Skywalker. Exactly, exactly. The evil British Empire, right? I know, Mickey's never seen Star Wars. (laughs) Well, the British Empire would be the evil empire, so you can guess. Now, they wear white, I recently learned. (laughs) Yeah, it's not red coats. But, um, But yeah, it's often told as this good guy, bad guy, um, story when in fact it's much messier than that and I the book aims to the book doesn't aim to be complicated I hope that it's uh, a, an, an easy read but what I want it to do is to complicate readers ideas of the American Revolution and their ideas of loyalists or rebels and what it means to be one of them in Boston because both sides behaved badly dangerously violently I think that the book does a great job humanizing the people involved from John Hancock to Thomas Hutchinson. So both sides of the, of the conflict, but to switch gears just a little bit, is this your first book? Yes. Yes. It's my first book. So how did you come to the point of writing this? When did you decide I'm going to sit down and write a book on the revolutionary period in Boston? Yeah. So, um, I, run, I own a tour company that leads tours along the Freedom Trail. And what would often happen at the end of the tour is people were interested in, uh, the, the questions they asked showed that they had a deep interest in the stories that we were telling on our tour, which cover essentially 1765 to 1775. And so I said, I think I could write a book for for the people who come on my tour. Again, the people who have an interest in history, but may not know too much about it. Um, and but are are very much interested in learning more and learning um, facts, not not myths that we that we've created over time. Um, so so that's how it ca- I came to write it was essentially for my tour guests. So that's some interesting common ground. Nikki and I also used to be Boston walking tour guides, and I believe I read it in your biographical information that you're a transplant to Boston, right? Yeah. So I'm originally from San Diego and um, I moved out to Boston uh, in 2001. Um, And so I've been here 15 years. I love this city, but um, yeah, it's not, it's sometimes people find it peculiar for a San Diegan to move to, (laughs) to Boston, but I, I tell people that I'm here by choice because I love the city and I love the history. Well, secrets revealed, both Nikki and I are also transplants to the Boston area. And Where are you we guys say, from? Uh, I'm from West Virginia and Nikki's from Pennsylvania. Oh, yeah. Okay. So I've been here since 1997 and I say the same thing that I'm here by choice because I love the city so much. How did you come to love Boston history so much? Did that happen after you moved here or is that something that you moved here to pursue? Yeah, so um, it happened before I moved here. It was actually the reason I moved here. So I I love this story because, um, so I've always loved history. I went into undergrad being a history major. I always knew it was something I wanted to pursue. And I went to University of California, Davis for my undergrad and was lucky to have Alan Taylor a two-time Pulitzer Prize winning historian. Well, he hadn't won his second when he was at Davis, but um, he had won one Pulitzer Prize in history. And I was lucky to have him as a professor 
in undergrad, and I, I took an American Revolution class with him my junior year. And um, it, it's sort of like what we've been saying. I thought I knew about the American Revolution, and, and I did, but I didn't know it the way he was telling it. And the way he was telling it made me so interested, not just in the time period, but specifically in Boston, that I said to him, I'm going to go to Boston over spring break. What should I see? You know, I was so amped up to go see Boston. And this is funny today, but I was in his office hours and I said, what should I see? And he said, we have to walk the Freedom Trail. And I said, okay, what's that? <laughs> and it's funny because, of course, I lead tours on it now, but I didn't even know what it was. Um, there's nothing like it in California. I mean, frankly, there's nothing like it in the country. And so when I came out and visited over spring break, I fell in love with the city. And for part of the reasons we've talked about is the landscape of Boston still tells so much of the story. Uh, so I did the whole Freedom Trail on that visit from Boston Common to literally the top of the Bunker Hill Monument and um, dragged my two friends with me. And I said, the city's amazing. I'm moving here. So after I graduated, I moved here. So Brooke, when you came east, was that just to relocate to Boston or were you furthering your studies here? Oh, so for the first year, I was just relocating here. That's what a nut I was about Boston. I just knew I wanted to be in Boston. And then um, I had also decided that I wanted to pursue graduate work, specifically a PhD. And so I, had t I was taking a year off in between undergrad and grad school and moved to Boston just to be a part of this amazing city. And then it happened that Boston College was the right fit for me for graduate school. And so then I started a year later at BC. So Brooke, is there a story that you used during the walking tours that didn't make the cut into the book? Yeah, so actually my entire dissertation <laughs> didn't make it into the book. Um, <laughs> So I wrote about the, the daughters of men who participated in revolutionary activities. And um, one of those men was Sammy Gore. He was a participant in the Boston Tea Party, for example. But he was also shot by Ebenezer Richardson the same day that he shot Christopher Snyder. And so Sammy Gore was this very involved rebel. And I was trying to find a way, even by a footnote, to shoehorn in that his daughters went on to become interesting women in their own right and I attribute it to having this revolutionary father um, and I couldn't find a way to to shoehorn it in um, so it had to the, basically my entire dissertation had to be left out but <laughs> um, the knowledge about Sammy Gore comes from that and the interest in him comes from that but um, yeah it's all it's all left out is he an ancestor of the future governor Gore He's a brother of Christopher Gore. Yeah. The governor uh, of Gore Place. Yes. In, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Gore Place is perhaps our favorite historic house. It's amazing. I mean, it's amazing. It's so beautiful and um, well-preserved and they do a great tour there. Yeah. So I have to ask after that tantalizing teaser, what did Sammy Gore's daughters go on to do? Oh, so they form what today we would call a book club. 
but it was a, it, they called it the gleaning circle and they um, met once a week to talk about really interesting things for women at this time they were talking about what it meant to what they a, they would ask questions like what is patriotism and what makes a good wife and and the role of friendship in women's lives i mean really interesting stuff for women at this time and um and i was arguing that it was because they had a father like this so sammy gora ends up going on to be uh to lose feeling in his hand because of being shot and i just imagined him telling this story to his sons and daughters and having it in some way motivate them to to find out um, what they believe for themselves and and um, so they go on to do this really interesting thing and part of the part of their friends are in the circle are also um, also had a dad who participated in the Boston Tea Party Moses Grant and so it's this really interesting next generation of rebels but they're women that's a great story. I can see where that would be very hard to shoehorn into a book about the revolutionary period, but a great story. That's a that's a follow-up book. Yeah. Yeah, it really didn't fit and I and I almost put it in as a as a footnote, you know, just sort of as a not a smile to myself, but it really didn't make sense. It wasn't in service of the story, so it got cut. Founding Daughters, it's part 2. So, inspired by their very thought-provoking questions, I have one for you which we can answer as well. But um, one of your tours focuses on drinking in Boston. And we were wondering, is there a character from your book who you'd like to have a beer with today? And also, is there somebody that popped up in the book that you believe you would find completely insufferable? Um, First, the word insufferable is exactly the word I would use to describe several of the people in the book. Um, (laughs) So I'll start on a positive note and say I would love to have a beer with Paul Revere. I mean, he would know everyone at the tavern. He would be introducing me. He'd have great stories. He loved to drink, so he'd be a good person to go out with. So I would love to have a beer with Paul Revere. Insufferable to have that I wouldn't even be able to sit through a full beer with is Governor Francis Bernard. Um, I think he would be so boring. Um, It sounds, I don't know how you guys feel about John Adams, but I also wouldn't want to sit through a beer with John Adams because I know he would just talk about himself the whole time. (laughs) Well, I am, of course, a fearsome defender of John Adams, usually in Twitter flame wars with at the a.ham. But uh, yeah, I, I am a big Adams fan, but I'll let that stand. So who would who would you guys have a beer with? Honestly, I think I'd like to have a beer with Thomas Hutchinson. I'd just like to pick his brain. The man knew more about Massachusetts history than just about anybody before or since. Yeah, what what I, I, w- I totally agree with you. I find him to be a sympathetic figure, even though people often view him as a villain. I it, It's interesting. I think he doesn't have much self-awareness at times so it would be I, hard I worry to... i might also find him insufferable that's the problem <laughs> yeah what about what about you nikki um i would like to have a beer with joseph warren uh, just because he's so handsome oh my gosh okay yeah. and i think you know as somebody who who died so early in the revolution that he would like to know how things ended yes yes um 
I and and I, you know, I really don't try to go down this road, but it is so interesting to think what how things would have been different with had he lived um, through 1775 and 1776 because he was really a rising star uh, at this time, and um, and yeah, he, his life cut way too short. I think I would find. Uh, John Hancock to be completely insufferable. Oh, I I I know why you say it. <laughs> I, I, I love him, but I know why you say it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's how I feel about Adams. I know why you say it. Yeah, yeah, him. yeah. <laughs> exactly, exactly. All right, fair enough then. So, Brooke, you know, aside from taking one of your walking tours, if somebody was planning a day trip to Boston, what do you think would be you know, really the must do for that person? Well, I've got two sites, two favorite sites, hands down, must see. The Granary Burying Ground, which we've already mentioned, um, which is across the street from where the manufacturing house stood, because that's the who's who of Boston rebels um, that are buried, are buried in the Granary Burying Ground. So Hancock is there, Samuel Adams is there, James Otis, uh, Paul Revere, and then you've got people mentioned very peripherally in the book, uh, Peter Faneuil, Robert Treat Payne, they're in there as well. It's really a spectacular place and it's right in the heart of the city. So that's a must see. And then the other would be the Old State House, um, which is a short walk from the Granary Burying Ground. That is a marvelously preserved building that is um, really breathtaking, especially when you view it from the outside because of the way the city has cropped up around it. There's much taller, bigger, sleeker buildings around it, but it stands majestically on its own. Um, so the Old State House is also a must see. In the show notes this week, if I remember, I will put an animated GIF that the city archeologist Joe Bagley created that shows how Boston grew up around the old state house. So it shows the oh. development uh, through the years. So just to illustrate that point from you, Brooke. I've never seen that. Well, then I will redouble my efforts to find it and yes. put it into the show oh notes. Oh my gosh, cool. So thanks so much for planning our daily itinerary for our next trip to Boston. <laughs> Brooke, this has been a lot of fun. I have to say thank you so much for joining us today. If our listeners want to find out more about you online, where should they go? Um, well, thanks for having me, you guys. I had so much fun talking history with you guys. Um, to find me, they can go to our tour company uh, website, which is called Ye Old Tavern Tours, old with an E. Um, and they can find the book on Amazon. Um, if they search Brooke Barbier, they will, the book will come up. And um, we're also on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook, so they could follow us that way. Um, all under Yield Tavern Tours. And we'll have links to all that in the show notes this week to make it easy to find Brooke online. Again, Brooke, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Thanks, you guys. It was great to have Brooke on the show. And now, as promised, we're going to take a look at what's coming up this week in Boston history. Monday is March 27th. And on March 27th, 1832, Henry Ware delivered an address before the Cambridge Temperance Society concluding... I simply ask of you, friends and fellow citizens, to give the subject a fair consideration, and if, as reasonable men, as citizens, as patriots, as Christians, you feel the evil and desire its extinction, lend the power of your names to the enterprise. 
enlist in this crusade against the general destroyer. Array yourselves under the banner of your country and your god in this holy war of extermination against the chief public enemy. The victory will be won, the most important and blessed victory since the Reformation of Luther, only when every individual shall have joined our ranks and become a free, voluntary, practical advocate of the duty of absolute abstinence. Oh, sorry about that background noise. I just had to open up a fresh beer. You can find a full transcript of that address in the show notes this week, if you want to see what a fun party the Temperance Society was. On March 28, 1895, the governor of Massachusetts walked from the State House down Beacon Hill across Boston Common to Boylston Street. He exchanged pleasantries with the chief engineer of the Transit Commission. Then they each turned over a shovelful of soil near a survey stake. The mayor of Boston had a prior commitment and was unable to attend. As the governor turned away and walked back toward the State House, a construction crew began excavating in earnest. With this muted ceremony, work began on America's first subway system. To learn about some of its early challenges, listen to last week's show. Wednesday is March 29th. Just after 2 in the morning on March 29th, 1968, the pastor of Boston's first church, the one originally founded by John Winthrop in 1630, got a terrible phone call. At 2.15 a.m. the phone rang. Was it a tragedy that had befallen a family or an individual? Was it someone with a serious problem? Such thoughts raced through your mind at such an hour. The call was from a neighbor. The worst fire she had ever seen was raging near Berkeley and Marlborough streets. Was it our church? She didn't know. I dressed quickly. The phone rang again, and this time it was my mother, who had seen a fire in the same area. Even then, I couldn't believe that our church was aglow with flames. Entering a taxi, I asked to go to Berkeley and Marlborough streets. I've just been down in that area, he replied, but I won't go back. It's terrifying. The church is going up in flames. The whole city may burn. What church, was my quick question. The first church was his answer. The Unitarian Church. I'm one of its ministers, I said. As he dropped me at the corner of Arlington and Marlborough Streets, the man was almost in tears. He refused the fare and said in a very low voice, I'm sorry. As I walked up Marlborough Street, the flames were shooting above our tower. The cinders were flying in a wide arc. It was obvious that the building was going. There was no hope of saving it. Of the 1867 building, the fifth the congregation had occupied, only the bell tower and the facade along Berkeley Street could be saved. Today, they've been grafted onto a modern concrete building that still serves Boston's oldest church. We'll have pictures of the fire, and a link to Reverend Reese Williams' sermon that I quoted above, including his account of the fire, in this week's show notes. At six in the morning on March 30th, 1775, the British 1st Brigade, under Lord Percy, assembled on Boston Common. They formed ranks, their drums beat, and they marched out of town along Boston Neck through Roxbury and Brookline to the first bridge across the Charles River at today's Harvard Square. When they got there, they found a surprise. Believing that the troops were on their way to Concord to arrest the Provincial Congress and seize the militia's gunpowder, the patriotic citizens of Cambridge had pulled up all the planks from the bridge. Being proper, frugal Yankees, they didn't burn the planks or throw them in the river, they carefully stacked them on the Cambridge side so that they could be nailed back in place once the threat had passed. It might have been possible to send a few soldiers across the support beams to put the planks back in place, 
but doing so likely would have caused a fight with the local militia. So Lord Percy and his 1st Brigade kept marching to Watertown. There, they were met with an intact bridge, but two cannon pointed at them. Perhaps the Watertown militia had some second thoughts, though, because the two cannon were unmanned. The British, proving that they could march from Boston far into the countryside without opposition, turned and headed home again, no doubt after a hearty chuckle at Watertown's expense. The Provincial Congress, however, were not amused. They issued orders that, whenever the army, under the command of General Gage, shall march out of Boston with artillery and baggage, it ought to be opposed, and therefore the military force of the province ought to be assembled and an army of observation immediately formed. When the British marched on Concord again three weeks later, they no longer took the one-if-by-land route, but instead went two-if-by-sea. The militia met them on Lexington Green, and a war began. Friday is March 31st, and on March 31st, 1776, Abigail Adams wrote her famous Remember the Ladies letter to John, who was away in Philadelphia serving in the Second Continental Congress. I long to hear that you've declared an independency. And by the way, in the new code of laws, which I suppose it will be necessary for you to make, I desire you would remember the ladies and be more generous and favorable to them than your ancestors. Do not put such unlimited power into the hands of husbands. Remember, all men would be tyrants if they could. If particular care and attention is not paid to the ladies, we are determined to foment a rebellion and will not hold ourselves bound by any laws in which we have no voice or representation. I just love that Abigail is saying, oh, by the way, if you could do this, that would be great. But if not, we will foment a rebellion. (laughs) (laughs) I love Abigail Adams. Uh, Hey, Jake, did you know that the Puritans loved April Fool's Day? Really? No, April Fool's. Oh. The Salem witch trial judge Samuel Sewell was fairly liberal for a Puritan, eventually apologizing for his role in the trials and writing against slavery. However, even he couldn't stand April Fool's Day. On April 1st, 1708, he told two Boston schoolmasters, What an abuse of precious time. What a profanation. I have heard a child of six years old say within these two or three days that one must tell a man his shoes were unbuckled, when they were indeed buckled. And then he would stoop down to buckle them, and then he was an April Fool insinuate into your scholars the defiling and provoking nature of such a foolish practice and take them off from it. And even in 1719, his diary noted, In the morning, I dehorted Samuel Hurst and Grindle Rawson from playing idle tricks because t'was the 1st of April. They were the biggest fools that did so. Finally, Sunday is April 2nd. Speaking of Samuel Sewell, there's quite an interesting entry in his diary in 1674. April 2nd. Benjamin Gord of Roxbury, being about 17 years of age, was executed for committing bestiality. He committed the filthiness at noonday in an open yard. He after confessed that he had lived in that sin a year. Before young Gord was hanged, the mare he sinned with was killed. In keeping with the theocratic nature of Massachusetts Bay Colony, the sentence followed an injunction from Leviticus. And if a man lie with a beast, he shall surely be put to death, and ye shall slay the beast. Poor Benjamin was the last execution for bestiality in North America. We'll have a link to a 25-page sermon against Gord from another minister, Samuel Danforth, in this week's show notes.
If you want to find out more about Brooke Barbier and her book, Boston in the American Revolution, check out our show notes this week at hubhistory.com slash 022. We'll have a link to the website for Ye Old Tavern Tours, and we'll also have links to follow Brooke on Facebook and Instagram. And of course, we'll have a link you can use to purchase her book on Amazon. As a reminder, we're having a contest to give away a Back Bay Deconstructed Tour that focuses on the process of filling the Back Bay salt marsh and building today's neighborhood. If you like Hub History on Facebook between now and March 31st, you'll be entered in a raffle to win a tour for up to 12 people. We'll announce the winner in next week's show. If you want to get in touch with us, you can email us at podcast at hubhistory.com. We're at hubhistory on Twitter and at facebook.com slash hubhistory. Or you can go to hubhistory.com and click on the Contact Us link. While you're on the site, hit the subscribe link to be sure you never miss an episode. That's all for now. We'll be back next week with a show about the Grimka sisters.